Now will you listen to chapter 19, Paul's work in Ephesus. It came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost? That is, when ye believe. Not since. It's not a word that you have here. This genitive absolute in the Greek is the same tense as the other. And that means, when you believe, did you receive the Holy Spirit? When you believe. And they said unto him, We've not so much as heard whether there be a Holy Spirit. You see, he didn't come till the day of Pentecost, and they only knew the baptism of John. And he said unto them, Under what then were ye baptized? And they said, Under John's baptism. Now, you see, they're not saved, but they were baptized, and they had not received the Holy Spirit, because they weren't saved. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. In other words, the baptism of John was a preparation for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They now turned to Christ, and they're saved for the first time. My friend... They did not get saved under Apollos, because he didn't even know about Christ. Some people seem to think that they were saved, and then later they got the Holy Spirit. That's not true. They weren't saved. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. That is, they spoke now the gospel. They could witness now, and they could witness And I think the tongues that they witnessed with were tongues that were understood just as it was in the day of Pentecost because Ephesus was a polyglot city in the Roman Empire. East and west met all along that coast, and this was the great city of that day. Now, we are told, and all the men were about twelve. Now, we see the beginning of the ministry in Ephesus, and as we've said, Paul's ministry in Corinth and in Ephesus was his greatest ministry. And I'm of the opinion his ministry in Ephesus was the greatest. Now, Paul had to leave the synagogue there because of the fact that there was a great deal of opposition to him, and he moved his place of operation, that is, where he was speaking to the school of Tyrannus. And let's move on from there, and I'd like to read beginning at verse 8. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way, before the multitude he departed from them, and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, what was the school of Tyrannus? Well, the school of Tyrannus was a school that was conducted for the Ephesians, and they had a siesta in the middle of the day, probably two and sometimes three hours. Now, in that particular period, and that was a period when people could come in and hear Paul, He secured these quarters. I imagine he rented them. And in that space there 
of the siesta in the middle of the day, Paul for two years preached the Word of God. Now notice what happened during that period. Verse 10, "...and this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwell in Asia..." Now that means the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, this gives you some conception of how the word of God was growing in that day. And apparently, from that advantage point, the church in Colossae came into existence. You see, Paul wrote to the Colossians as he did to the Romans, and he'd never even visited there. But he was the founder of the church. And how was he the founder of the church in Colossae? By the simple fact that from the school of Tyrannus, there sounded out the gospel, and it went out everywhere. So much so that Paul could say, when he wrote the Corinthians, and they were wanting him to come over there, he says, "...but I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great Noah and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries." Now, that's in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. Now, for two years, that gospel sounded out so that everyone had heard in the province of Asia. And I think that the seven churches of Asia Minor came into existence through the preaching of Paul the Apostle at this particular place. I'm not sure, but what we could say here is where he had his greatest ministry. Now, will you notice what happened here? And God wrought special miracles. Now, the word for miracles here is a little different word. It's dunamis, and we get our word dynamite from that. God wrought special powers by the hands of Paul. Now, you see, he's exercising the gifts of an apostle. Now, here in this great religious center, and it was a greater religious center than Athens or any other place, and it was a place that was satanic to the very core. The great temple of Diana was there. When we get to the epistle to the Ephesians, we'll be talking about these different places Paul visited in a great deal more detail than we can here in the book of Acts. And I want to talk about that temple and about the satanic worship that was carried on in that place. Now, in order to meet that opposition, God granted him special powers, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Now, I'd like to pause there a moment to say something that needs to be said today. What were these handkerchiefs? are aprons, as they're called also. Well, Paul used these in his work. Remember, he was a tent maker, and that's a warm climate. Now, when he's bending over making a tent, why, he perspires, and perspiration would drop down on the tent he's making. So he has their handkerchief or an apron that he just reaches down, gets up, and mops his brow. And it was a dirty thing, they were. And the people came and picked up these dirty handkerchiefs, and the disease departed from them. Now, it was true that in that area there were the mystery religions, 
And they went in for cleanliness. They used white garments, white everything. Everything had to be just cleaned and everything had to be just so. And it's as it were, God is rebuking all of that. And these dirty sweat bands were picked up by the people and were used actually in healing. They're not quite what folks seem to think today that they were. And it reveals the special power that was granted to the Apostle Paul. And as far as I know, this is the only incident that this ever took place. And that includes the modern day in which we live, friends. It's almost next to blasphemy for anybody to say that they've got a power of sending out some little handkerchief and that there's power in that to begin with. For Paul, it wasn't a handkerchief. They just come and get these old sweat cloths that were there. And that was the thing God was using to rebuke the heathen pagan religions of that day. And the evil spirits went out of them. Now, will you notice, then certain of the vagabond Jews, these are the wandering Jews, they were going from place to place, And they were engaged in this type of thing of casting out demons themselves. In fact, they dealt with the occult. They were connected with the mystery religions. And I wish we had time to talk about those mystery religions. And we have this incident now that takes place here. They were exorcists. They took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by... Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. Now, they saw what Paul did, and they tried to duplicate it. Now, here is a specific incident. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests which did so. Now, the priests actually had gone into this type of thing. And will you notice? And the evil spirit answered and said... Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? Now, Jesus I know is, that's the word genosko. They knew who he was. And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now, the tempt of the sons of Sceva to try to duplicate the miracles of Paul, you see, backfired. And it backfired to their humiliation and hurt. It was great embarrassment, uh, apparently, for them. Now, will you notice verse 17, And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now, you see the effect that this sort of thing had. It caused the name of the Lord Jesus to be spread through that entire pagan city. And Ephesus, friends, was a great city, and the entire city was shaken by this. You can see that the miracles Paul performed, the other apostles, it wasn't the type thing that you hear of today. Who's moved by these things today? Why, they've been coming and going in Los Angeles and Southern California for years, and it's made no dent or impression on this great pagan city here. But Ephesus was shaken to its very foundation. 
and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Well, he's not magnified in this area. Now, verse 18, "...and many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men." And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Well, that would be approximately $8,000 today. That's quite a bonfire, by the way, an $8,000 bonfire. And that's what you have here. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Now, will you notice, after these things were ended, that is, after these experiences that... Dr. Lucas recorded here, took place, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now, apparently, after this missionary journey, it was the intention of Paul to go to Rome. And the interesting thing is, he did, but not the way he planned it. Now, will you notice, verse 22, "...so he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season." Now, this was the time that he wrote the Corinthians, and apparently Timothy and Erastus took the letter and told the people in Macedonia, that would include Philippi, Thessalonica, and would also include those that were in Achaia, which would be Athens and Corinth. That great door and effectual is open unto me, but there are many adversaries. And we see now what the adversaries are satanic. This is a center of pagan religion that was Satan worship. Satan worship is not new at all. Now, will you notice verse 23, "...and the same time there arose no small stir about that way." You see, Christianity at that time didn't have the name of a church or a denomination at all. It was just called that way. It was a new way. certainly was. The way was the Lord Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said. Now, we... Read this story here, verse 24. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, or Artemis, brought no small gain under the craftsmen. Now you see around this great temple of Diana that was there, and that was a great pagan temple, and it was the center of business, by the way. It was the bank of that day. And it also was a center of sin and gross immorality that took place around it. You know, religion can go lower than anything else. And it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the largest Greek temple that was ever built. It was beautiful. Some of the works of Praxiteles were there. But the image of Diana was hideous. It was not the Diana of the Greeks, a graceful image, but this was the crude, many-breasted Oriental Diana. And they were selling these little images, you see. It was big business that he's interfering with. And the uproar of the silversmiths, led by Demetrius, it centered actually about their bread and butter. They made these little images, sold them. 
and they were doing well. And the temple of Diana in Ephesus, here it was, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We're going to talk about it when we get to the epistle of Ephesians. And they have this meeting about it. Now, notice what took place. And he called the workmen together of like occupation, and he said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. They were getting rich. And I tell you, you don't step on a man's pocketbook without hearing him say, Ouch. And notice verse 26. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So then not only this, our craft is in danger to be said it not, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. Now, this was the center of commerce, the center of worship, and the center of religion, actually the center for the Orient and the Occident. Here is where east is east and west is west, and Kipling was wrong. They did meet in Ephesus, and the worst of both came out. Verse 28, And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath, cried out, saying, Great's Diana of the Ephesians. Now, they got a bunch of placards. This is a day when we don't have any writers, except they can write one-sentence placards. And in that day, they were good at that. And so they're not very original. They just put on the placard, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Went around the city squealing that out. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. And when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. Well, Paul would have been mobbed, of course. Absolutely, he would have been slain. And he's had one experience like that over in the Galatian country in Lystra. Now, in verse 31, I'm reading, "...in certain of the chief of Asia," these are called Asiarchs, "...which were his friends sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater." There was a mob there, and these men were outstanding men in that area. Many of them had turned to Christ, and they advised Paul. They said, "...it'd be foolish for you to go into the mob. You wouldn't do a bit of good." Some therefore cried one thing and some another. Real mob, you see. For the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not whereof they were come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander beckoned with the hand and would have made his defense unto the people. Now, he was a local official. But when they knew that he was a Jew all with one voice about the space of two hours, cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. This is what's known as freedom of speech. They didn't permit him to speak because they wanted to run around and squeal, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now, when the town clerk had appeased the people, and the town clerk really means he's a local official, had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there 
that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter. Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, ye ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. In other words, he says, you're making too much out of this. Well, look at this great temple. And this is a popular thing. Why, we know that nothing can happen to this. And all, of course, that's been in ruins for nearly 2,000 years now. Now, will you notice? And he says, For ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches, nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open. Their deputies let them implead one another. In other words, if you want to bring a case against these men, the court is open, and that they do not need to worry about the worship of Diana. And if they want to make a legal charge, they can do that. Well, when this man called their attention to what they were doing, why, they immediately break up when the crowd goes home. Notice this, but if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. Now, he said, if you have something else, why, let's all sit down and put on the placards and quit running around squealing and sit down and let's have an orderly meeting. Well, that's what they didn't want, of course. For we are in danger to be called in question. That is, we are in danger of being accused for this day's riot. Riots are not new, friends. This is something that sounds very much up to date. There being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. And the crowd, they all went home. And now the work of Paul actually in Ephesus is ended. His ministry is over now. And I'm moving now to chapter 20, verse 1. And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them, and departed for to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts, and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece, which means he went to Athens, and to Corinth, and there abode three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail unto Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. And there accompanied him into Asia, Soapater, of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus, and Trophimus. All of these now were believers that had come to Christ under his ministry. And he has quite a delegation now, and these men are missionaries. These going before tarried for us at Troas. You will recall that at Troas, Paul performs a great miracle. He raises a man from the dead. You see, this man, Paul, had the sign gifts of an apostle. We need to recognize that. This is what established the message he was bringing. Now, if you enjoy travel logs, I can't imagine one that's more thrilling than the one that we're going to take up right now in this 20th chapter. As we saw last time, Paul was on his third missionary journey. And now he is returning back from that journey. 
and he's going all the way to Jerusalem. And he has, to my judgment, one of the most thrilling trips. Now, we saw in the first five verses that Paul has now covered the European section of his third missionary journey. Now, when we come down to verse 5, this records the visit of Paul to Troas. Now, you will recall that this was the springboard from which he leaped into Europe on his second missionary journey. Now, he comes back to Troas on his last missionary journey here into Europe. Let me read verse 5. These going before tarried for us at Troas. Now, there was quite a party, quite a group of men, missionaries. And I take it that these men had been with Paul before, and that when Paul would have a ministry in a place like Corinth, these men would radiate out and touch the countryside and the small towns, and they had a ministry there. When you read over in the epistle to the Colossians about the fact that the Word of God had sounded out in that day to the whole world, may I say to you, that sounds unbelievable, but it was true. It's no oratorical gesture. It also not hyperbole. He means the Roman world, because that was the world of that day. The Word of God, Paul says, which is come unto you as it is in all the world. That's what he told the Colossians in one six. all of the Roman world. So these brethren are with Paul. And what we have in the book of Acts is a very limited record of missionary work. The record that we have is of Simon, Peter, and of Paul, as they were the two dominant ones in the early church. Now, verse 6, And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. Now will you notice verse 7. This is Paul's visit now to Troas. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Now, there are several things that I want to say about this verse. It was upon the first day of the week they came together. If you will note that where we have a record of the day that the church met, it was on the first day of the week. Paul said to the Corinthians, on the first day of the week, they're to bring their gifts. Then on the first day of the week, they broke bread, which means they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And on the first day of the week, Paul preached to them. Friends, the early church met on the first day of the week. That was the important day, because that's the day that Jesus came back from the dead. And under the old creation, it was the seventh day, the Sabbath day. But that belongs to the old creation. On the Sabbath day, Jesus was dead inside the tomb. On the first day of the week, he came forth. We meet on that day because we are now joined to a living Christ. And that's the testimony of the first day of the week. Now, the other thing that interests me about this verse here is that Paul preached to them, and he was going to leave the next day. 
and he preached all the way till midnight. Now, I do not know many congregations that would listen to me till midnight. In fact, I don't know any congregation that would listen to me till midnight. And I'm of the opinion there are not very many preachers that would preach till midnight in these days in which we live. But I suppose the excuse is this was Paul's last visit, and it was a tender meeting of Coas, and so Paul's getting ready to leave, and he'll not be back. This is his last trip here. That may give the excuse for it. I tell folk today that, and very frankly admit, I'm a long-winded preacher. I'm known as that. And it's a good thing on radio here that there's a cut-off time, and I have to be off the air, because if it was otherwise, I'd just talk on and on and on. I love to teach the Word of God. And I tell him that I have a system of homiletics. I'd never learned it in seminary. I picked it up myself. In fact, I got it from a TV commercial. And of all things, a commercial of a cigarette. And it's this. It's not how long you make it, but how you make it long. And I believe in making it long, and I have scriptural authority for that. Paul did. Now, he spoke till midnight. And you can't help but smile at this. Let me read on. Verse 8. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. They had the place lighted up. You talk about a bunch of swingers. The early Christians were, friends. They didn't stay up at midnight whooping it up. They stayed up at midnight listening to the Word of God and praising Him. My, I tell you, we have let the world take away from us the fun that we ought to be having today with the things of God. So if your preacher goes over a little, friends, be patient with him just so he doesn't go to midnight. And Paul, I think, made a mistake. You're going to midnight in one sense because look what happened. There sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus being fallen into a deep sleep. Now, I had a friend that preached up in the country in Middle Tennessee. And he was a country boy from Middle Tennessee, and he had many of the quaint sayings. And I've held meetings in this same church where he made this statement. And what would happen in the summertime, they have protracted meetings. And to me, it was a Bible conference. And I know one night when I was speaking, that was quite interesting. In the back of the church, they had a place for pallets. And when one little fellow would go to sleep, a mother would be holding, she'd just get up, take him back, and put him down on the pallet. And then in a few minutes, another little fellow goes to sleep, and mama gets up, takes him back, puts him down on the pallet. Now, I have seen as many as a half a dozen children sleep in the back of that church. And this preacher was preaching there. And so one night, after several of the mothers had made quite a trek back, taking a little sleeping child and putting him down on the pallet, this preacher just interrupted himself, made a statement. He says, you know, says Paul preached till midnight, and he only put one to sleep. And I've been preaching here to about nine o'clock, and I've put four to sleep. And he said, I must be a better preacher than Paul, because I can put more to sleep than he can put to sleep. Well, my friend, may I say to you that Paul put one to sleep. And so that's been a comfort to me. When I look at the congregation, I see some brother or sometime a sister out there asleep. I say, it's all right. Just let them sleep, because Paul put them to sleep, too. But what happened? This young fellow was sitting in a window, and it was upstairs. 
And what happened? And as Paul was long preaching, oh, I love that, he sunk down with sleep. In other words, I think the boy snored and fell down from the third law. Now, apparently he was up higher than the second floor, and he fell down. He was taken up dead. Now, that's a tragedy, you say, and a moment ago I said this is laughable. Well, it is because of the way it worked out. But if this had been the end, it would have been a tragedy. Now, notice what happened. And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long time, even until break of day, so he departed. And Paul raised this boy from the dead. Now, you remember that Simon Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. Paul raised from the dead. These were gifts that belonged to the apostles and those in the early church that were witnesses. After the canon of Scripture was established, you don't have these gifts. In fact, they're definitely not needed. But at this time, they were. Now, will you notice, we're told here, and they brought the young man alive and were not a little comforted. And that means they were thrilled to death that this precious young man who had come to Christ now had been raised from the dead and was in their midst. And so Paul preached not only little midnight, he preached all the way till daylight. Does that tell you something today? When you look into some churches and you hear probably an officer complaining about the preacher going over ten minutes, or five minutes even. And here, these early believers, they went all night long listening to Paul. Now, I know what somebody's going to say. Well, if I could listen to Paul, I'd listen all night. In that day, he is not the Paul that we think of him today. He was just an humble preacher of the gospel, friends. And these people wanted to hear the Word of God. How wonderful this is when you get off and look at it from our vantage point. Now, verse 13, they're on the way again, and we're traveling. And Dr. Luke is along because he writes, "...and we went before to ship and sailed unto Assus, there intending to take in Paul, for so had he appointed minding himself to go afoot. Now, he went down the coast, and if you get the chart that we have with our notes and outlines, and I do hope that you have that, you'll see that on the third missionary journey, actually, Paul went down the coast to Ephesus, and the others took ship and came by ship down. Why would you think Paul would go by foot? Well, to witness on the way. I think there were many places that he probably stopped on the way to witness. Verse 14, And when he met with us at Assus, we took him in and came to Medellini. And we sailed thence and came the next day over against Caius. And the next day we arrived at Samos and tarried at Trogilium. And the next day we came to Miletus. That's a good exercise pronunciation, as well as doing a little study in geography and having a nice travel log. Now, will you notice, verse 16, "...for Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia, for he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem 
the day of Pentecost. Now, Paul is determined to go by Ephesus and determined to go to Jerusalem, and for very definite reasons. Now we are going to move along. Verse 17, "...and from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church." Now, maybe you'll want to leave my map or my chart at this particular point, but you don't need to. But if you get a good map, you'll see that Ephesus actually at this time seems to be inland somewhat. Now, the river was filling up the harbor at Ephesus so that today the city of Ephesus is removed two or three miles from the water's edge. And a great part of the city is even five miles away. And Miletus is down the coast, and it is on the coast. So he sent for the elders to come down there. Now notice verse 18, "...when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons." Now, Paul was a faithful witness for Jesus Christ, and he could use that as the basis. He says, you know how I have given you the Word of God. Paul pulled no punches. He gave the total Word of God. Now he goes on, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and testings which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. These were the religious rulers and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you. You see, I'm not the first one to have a through-the-Bible radio ministry. Paul went through the Bible. He said, I gave it all to you. I declared the full counsel of God. But they showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Spirit witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Now, here is where a great many good men differ. And some of my best friends in the ministry, and they're much better Bible teachers and more of an authority than I could possibly be, they believe that Paul made a mistake in going to Jerusalem that he should not have gone. Now, this testimony gives you, I think, some important. I personally think he was entirely in the will of God, and Paul makes it clear here his position. Now, what is his position? He said, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm bound in the Spirit, because the Spirit of God has testified to me everywhere what waits me in Jerusalem, that bonds and afflictions. Now, the Spirit of God did not put up a roadblock as he did when Paul wanted to come to Ephesus the first time. 
No, sir, he didn't do that. He just said, Paul, I want you to know what you're walking into. And Paul makes it very clear. Paul says, I don't count my life dear. I'm willing to lay my life down for Jesus. And he wanted to bring this gift with his own hands to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And so Paul's going to Jerusalem. And for me, I think it's in the will of God. When he got the end of his life, he can say, I finished my course. I think he touched all the bases. Jerusalem was third base, and I think he made it. I'm not sure, but why it was home plate. No, he hadn't gone home when he was in Jerusalem. Now, will you notice verse 25? And now, behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone, preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. That is, in this life. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Friends, as many of you know, I'm a retired preacher today. I have made blunders and failures in many directions. But I look back on my ministry, and I can say to you truthfully today, when I stood in the pulpit, I declared the Word of God as I saw it. Now, it was not always received in a friendly manner. I find out there are a lot of the pious saints today, they really don't want to hear the Word of God. And Paul found that to be true. And my business has been, and I have deep satisfaction today, that if I went back to any pulpit I ever preached in, I have anything to add to what I already said. Now, maybe I can say it a little better than I did then, and I sure hope I could. And I wish I could say it better, and I'm saying it today. But the important thing, friend, is to make sure we declare the whole counsel of God. Give out the Word of God. Now, listen to Paul. He says, "...take heed therefore unto yourselves, to all the flock, over the which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood." And I believe that's the business of the offices of the church, is to see that the church is fed. They're not to run the church. They're to see that the church is fed the Word of God. For I know this, listen to Paul, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And friends, I've seen that. That can happen. The devil wants to get into a church where the Bible has been taught. He'd like to wreck a radio ministry that's teaching the Word of God. And there's quite a few of them that are teaching the Word of God today. And I rejoice with these brethren of mine. The devil, he's not our friend. He's our enemy today. And Paul said to them, that's what would happen there in Ephesus. Now he says, "...also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things." to draw away disciples after. In other words, there'll be little termites in your midst that are going to cause trouble after I leave. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God, to the word of his grace. And that's what we can always do when we leave a people, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. And then Paul can say, I've coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Preachers should not be money hungry. And now notice, yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I've showed you all things. And then he goes on. 
Now notice the tender departure. And they all wept so, fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more, and they accompanied him under the ship. Isn't that a tender departure of Paul and a fond farewell? Now, friends, as we come today to this 21st chapter of the book of Acts, we merely continue on with the apostle Paul on his return journey from his third missionary trip. He made three, and he's returning now, and it's almost like a wonderful victory march that he's having as he comes back into the city of Jerusalem. But along the way, why, there are warnings that are coming to him. And then we saw that tender meeting that Paul had yonder with the elders of the church in Ephesus. And they loved him, and he loved them. And yet he warned them that even in their own midst there would arise those that were wolves in sheep's clothing, and that they would turn people from the word of God. And we've seen that today. We've seen it in our day. Now, Paul, as he moves on, and if you have our notes, we have a map. It's rather sketchy, but you can certainly follow Paul's third missionary journey. And if you keep that map before you now, he's leaving Ephesus, and he's come down to Miletus. And now we find, I'm reading it, verse 1 of chapter 21 of Acts. And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them and had launched, we came with a straight course unto Coas, and the day following unto Rhodes, and from thence unto Patara. And finding a ship sailing over unto Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forward. Now, are you with him? May I say that taking ship at Miletus came down to the southern coast of Asia Minor, Patara, and changed ships there, and now he's headed for Tyre on the coast of Israel. Actually, it's in the land that we know today as Phoenicia, ancient Phoenicia, and, of course, today in Lebanon. Now, will you notice, now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed unto Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unlade her burden. Now, I love the way that Paul expresses it here, and I think the translators of our authorized version has captured something that the modern translations just miss. For instance, he talks about they discovered Cyprus, then they just left it on the left hand, which simply means that as they are sailing now to Tyre, Cyprus looms in the distance. Well, they didn't want to land there. Paul had been there before, and he didn't discover it when he was there before. It had been discovered long before that. But all it means is simply that it loomed on the distance to their left, and then they left it because they are not going to stop there. And they go on to what was then Syria, but Tyre is the city. Tyre was a great commercial center, had been from ancient times.
Now, notice what Paul does. Verse 4, "...and finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem." Now, this is the verse, of course, that those who believe Paul made a mistake in going to Jerusalem, they use this verse because they said that this man spoke to Paul through the Spirit. And if I understand it correctly, the Spirit's not contradicting himself. What he's saying again is the same thing that he said before. He's not to go up to Jerusalem unless he's prepared to make the sacrifice. And Paul keeps on saying that he's perfectly willing to lay down his life for the Lord Jesus. That is the way I think that it should be understood. Now, friends, Paul did not step out of the will of God when he went up to Jerusalem. To begin with, there was a sentimental reason. He had an offering, and he wanted to present it to the church in Jerusalem by his own hands, because those hands had wasted that church and had been partly responsible for it being brought down to a state of penury. And so Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem. Now, there are some very good reasons to believe that Paul's not out of the will of God, because the church in Philippi, when they found out Paul was in prison in Rome, you remember they sent to him, and they expressed their sympathy. They loved him, and so they are sympathizing with him. But you remember, Paul said, I want you to know that the things which have happened unto me have happened for the furtherance of the gospel. This didn't hinder the gospel. Paul's not out of the will of God. Then you'll remember when the Lord Jesus sent this man Simon over to Paul when he was converted. He said, he's a chosen vessel unto me. He's going to appear before kings and rulers. Well, up to this point, he hadn't appeared before kings and rulers. But he is from now on. He's going to go before kings. He'll be before King Agrippa, and he'll be in Rome, and probably he appeared before Nero. And certainly he reached those that were in Caesar's household, Again, we find that from the epistle to the Philippians written from the Roman prison. Now, with all of that information, it's very difficult for anyone to say, at least it would seem to me, well, Paul is out of the will of God. Well, Paul can say, I finished my course when he came to the end of his life. Now, I don't think he could say that. If he'd have to say, as maybe some of us would, for a period of time I stepped out of the will of God. Now, I can look back on my own ministry, and for a very brief time, I'm confident that I stepped out of the will of God. But, may I say to you, I think the Lord has a way of making these things up to us, because I didn't do it purposely. I did it, I think, ignorantly, and I think I did it in a headstrong manner. But I must confess that I feel Paul being able to say he's finished his course is not out of the will of God. Now, I spent a little time with that because, as you know, that's a matter of controversy. I have several friends in the ministry. They disagree with me on this particular matter, and we're still friends. I love these brethren in the Lord. I just tell them, I pray for them. They're going to see the light someday. 
And then one of them told me, said, you know, when we get in the presence of the Lord, why, we're going to be in agreement. And I said, yes, I was sure of that, that we'd all agree, because after all, there are always three sides to every question. Your side, my side, and the right side. And when we get up there, we're going to get the right side, and all of us will have that. But until then, I'm sure you'll want to go along with me because you'll want to be right. Now, let's proceed from there. And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way. And they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city and we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And I think that, again, is another one of the lovely things that Paul did. And by the way, you want to know the position you should get in to pray? Kneel. And we kneel down on the shore and pray. And again, I'm not contending for a form. I don't believe in that type of thing. I think you can pray anywhere since I drive a great deal and I'm by myself on many of these trips where I go and speak. I've learned to pray in the car. And friends, When you drive the freeways of Southern California, you better learn to pray. And I found out that's a good place to pray, by the way. Now, when we move on here, when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship, and they returned home again. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, and that's Acre, and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. I often wondered why Paul didn't stay there longer than that. But you'll notice the marvelous reception given to him and the number of believers that there were at this particular time. I honestly feel, friends, that there were millions of believers in the Roman Empire by the end of the first century. Now, will you notice verse 8, And the next day we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. Now, if you're following your map, either the one I have in my notes or one in your Bible or another one that you could get, you will notice, I'm sure, that Paul is going down the coast from one place to another. Now, I've driven that by bus, but there was no bus running in Paul's day. So he walked it, I'm sure, this particular section. And what a ministry he had. And just think of the believers on the way, the number of believers that he met. My, what a ministry and what an opportunity. And I wonder if I might inject something rather personal at this particular point. I felt that I've had my richest and ripest ministry since I retired. And I've had the privilege of going from church to church, town to town, city to city, place to place, ministering the Word of God. And I'm thrilled as I go around, and here's a fine pastor in a fine church. And I have the privilege of being with them for a week of ministry and meeting the people. And it's a great encouragement to you. You know, when I just had my nose to the grindstone, I sometimes developed an Elijah complex. And you know what that is? I only am left. I'm by myself. I'm the only one standing for you, Lord. And friends, if you could go over the ground I've been over, it would thrill your heart. 
to know the number of wonderful churches, wonderful Christian works, wonderful Christian homes, wonderful Christian believers that they are in this country and in other countries. I've been in several others. And I want to tell you what a thrill it has been to my own heart to meet these believers. And I think of Paul going down the coast here. Now, notice he's coming out of Caesarea. We entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. Philip the Evangelist now, and that means he was a teacher. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. Now, that was the gift in the early church of prophecy. See, there's no written New Testament yet, friends. So that reveals that women did occupy a prominent place in the church. When we get to the epistle to the Philippians, I'm going to dwell on that and probably say something rather radical and revolutionary. And now that I'm not a pastor, I can say it and get by with it because nobody can get after me. So we'll say that we get to the epistle to the Philippians. Now will you notice verse 10? And as we tarried there many days... There came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, All the Holy Spirit is doing in this matter of saying to Paul not to go up to Jerusalem, all he's saying is, Paul, this is what you're going to face. Are you willing to do it? In other words, God is saying, I don't want you to get up and say, I didn't tell you so, that I put you in a box. God says, I just want you to know what you're walking into. And Paul is perfectly willing now to go into this. And so that's all this prophet is saying to him. Actually, he's told him nothing new that he hadn't already heard back in chapter 20, long before he arrived here. In fact, when he was way over in Asia Minor, why, this had been told to him. He's heard nothing new. Now, verse 12, And when we, that is, Dr. Luke's writing, when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him, not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, that's all that we find here. And, of course, that's enough. But all the Spirit of God is saying, This is what's going to happen. You'll be bound. And Paul says, well, I'm not only willing to be bound, I'm willing to die. And you break my heart. But notice the concern the believers had for him. My, how they loved him. And when he would not be persuaded, we cease, saying, the will of the Lord be done. You see, Paul is the one in the will of God. The will of the Lord be done. And I think the will of the Lord was done. And after those days, we took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea, and brought with them one Manasseh of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. 
And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Now, notice when he came to Jerusalem, the church that's there received him gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. My, what a glorious reception now Paul the apostle. He's a veteran now, friends. And he's been in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, and he bears in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Now, when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. When they heard it, now notice this, Paul makes his report, and they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they're all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. Now, actually, they had twisted just a little what Paul actually was doing. Paul was not really doing the thing that they claim that he was doing at this particular time. Now, will you notice something I think that is quite interesting at this point, that we need to recognize that Paul was in the will of God when he went up there. They received him gladly. And then they let him know that literally thousands of Jews had turned to Christ. And we need to recognize also that those who insist that the grace of God did not force the Gentiles to keep the Mosaic law, they seem to forget that the same grace which permits the Jew to continue in its precepts if he feels it's the will of God, we need to remember that Peter had eaten nothing contrary to the Mosaic law until he visited Paul in Antioch, and the Jewish believers had an abhorrence of eating anything sacrificed to idols. Paul made it abundantly clear that meat does not commend us to God. Therefore, you can eat or refrain from eating. And Paul is the man who also wrote. Notice this. But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk, and so ordain I in all churches. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. That is, if he's been brought up with certain customs, let him continue to follow them. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. That, by the way, is 1 Corinthians 7, 17, and 18. And then in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, not being myself under the law, to them that are without law as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker of it with you." 
Now, let's not criticize Paul for what he's going to do here. This is what he does. Verse 22, What is it, therefore, the multitude must needs come together, for they'll hear that thou art come? Do therefore this, that we say to thee, We have four men which have a vow on them. Them take and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we've written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, and from strangling, from fornication. Now, what they're saying to Paul, Paul, you are here in Jerusalem. There are thousands of believers, but they still follow these ordinances. None of them are becoming uncircumcised. You couldn't undo it. Therefore, you are a Jew. Now you want to win these Jews. Paul says, I sure do. And so he became as one of them. And the vow he took is actually not in the Word of God. I mean, it was never part of the law. It was something they added. You see, now he's come to the church to bring a gift to the church in Jerusalem. And when he gets there, they not only listen to his report and rejoice in the way God has saved Gentiles, but they now say, look, Paul, look at the thousands of Jews here that are trusting Christ. They've turned to Christ. Now, we don't want to have a division among the Jews and Gentiles in the church. We want them to be one in the church. Now, you are a Jew. That's your background. It wouldn't hurt you to go with these four men who've made a vow. They've shaved their head, and they are going into the temple. Now, would you do that? Paul says, sure. And somebody says, you mean he'd do that? Of course he would. He said to the Jews, I became as a Jew. Paul didn't do this because it's commanded to do it. He did it because he wanted to win these people. That's the reason he's doing this. Now, will you notice then what actually took place at verse 27? And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law, and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple, and hath polluted this holy place. Now, as always, a mob gets its facts mixed up, and they thought that Paul had brought into the temple this man called Trophimus. And let me read verse 29. It's self-explanatory. For they had seen before with him in the city, Trophimus, an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Now, here is a very fine distinction we need to make. Now, when Paul, who was a Jew, brought up in that tradition, came to Jerusalem, he went into the temple. Now, Trophimus, he was an Ephesian, and apparently one of the converts of Paul. He was in Jerusalem. He wasn't going into the temple for any purpose at all. I mean, by that, this man 
had no reason to go through the ritual and under grace. If you wanted to, you could. If you didn't want to, you didn't have to. And that's grace. Now, Paul had taken this vow and this matter of fasting and then eating certain things. Paul was accustomed to that. Now, I know a great many Christians today that are fattest on diet. A diet won't commend you to God. But under grace, you can either eat it or not eat it. That's up to you, and that has to do maybe with your health, maybe with your physical condition, but has nothing to do with your relationship to God. Oh, if God's people could only learn that, it would, I think, make a difference. Now, here... They were ready to mob Paul. In fact, they intended to kill him. Now, let me read on. And all the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul, drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. That's verse 30. And as they went about to kill him, now notice that, their bitterness and hatred of this man. Why? Because he was teaching you didn't have to go through the Mosaic system to be saved. Now, they are absolutely, of course, wrong in that. But Paul is right in following one of these customs if he wants to do it. He's doing it to try to win his people. Now, it didn't accomplish, apparently, the purpose he had in mind, but I think it accomplished a God-given purpose. Now, notice this. And as they went about to kill him, tidings came under the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, who immediately took soldiers and centurions, ran down under them, and when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. In other words, Paul would have been killed if this captain had not intervened in his behalf. Then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was, what he had done. Now, this captain did not know him at all. He didn't recognize, as you and I would say today, why this is Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles. Well, he's not looking on him like that. He doesn't even know who he is. Actually, he thinks he's committed some crime because he puts him in chains. Now, some cried one thing, some another. That's always a mob. That's always the mob ruling among the multitude. And when he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. Now, the captain, when he couldn't find out what the charge was against him, why, he took Paul then into the castle. Now, when he came upon the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers, for the violence of the people, for the multitude of the people followed after, crying, Away with him! And as Paul was to be led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee? Who said, Canst thou speak Greek? Now, this man was amazed. Here's what he thinks is just a common criminal. And he speaks fluent Greek, that which the captain understood, since he was a foreign emissary, he was under a misapprehension of who Paul was. Here's who he thought he was. He says, verse 38 now, "...art not thou that Egyptian, which before these days madest an uproar, and ledest out into the wilderness four thousand men that were murderers?" This was in that day, you see, a 
mob leader, one of the protesters taking a mob out into the country. Listen to Paul now, verse 39. But Paul said, I'm a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. Now, he not only speaks Greek, but he says, I'm a Jew. And when he had given him license, now this captain said, well, sure, I didn't know who you were. Go ahead and speak. Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with a hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying, 